if you get viewed as a person who can make decisions and a person who can improve things uh, by making them better, you'll go far and you'll go far quickly. This is the Brilliance Leadership Learning Podcast, sharing thought-provoking content and discussions to enhance your leadership development journey. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of new episodes. Here are your hosts from the digital learning team at Crotonville, GE's Global Learning Institute. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Brilliance Leadership Learning. Today, we have Eric Durst, who is the president of DeVry Online Services and manages online student support, online curriculum development, and centralized operations for all of DeVry Education Group's North America institutions. He has 28 years in the information technology field and joined DeVry in 2008 as the CIO. So today, we are going to talk with Eric about the 10 things that he wishes he knew earlier in his career. Eric, maybe I'll have you summarize those 10 points to start, and then we can talk a little bit more about each of them. Uh, You bet, Chantel. Thank you very much. Uh, So I'll just kind of rip through them pretty quickly. Uh, First one is I wish somebody would have told me that I really needed to focus a lot more on finance uh, because that is the language of business and the language certainly of management. So that's probably number one that uh, I wish I would have known a little bit more about. Thank God I had a business degree, but probably would have taken a few more finance courses. Number two is, you know, management is certainly not as much about strategy and execution as it is about people and all about how do you improve people, how do you improve people in a team environment, and how do you just get uh, really develop your people. That's number two. Number three is, you know, you, you, whether you like it or not, it really helps if you're a good public speaker. And many people don't realize that every time they're speaking in front of their teams, that's basically public speaking. So anything you can do to improve how you do that really can improve getting your message across and making sure that your teams really understand the direction you're trying to take them. Number four uh, was uh, team building. This is something I self-admit I'm not really good at, but it is really important and it helps build the right culture that you want to build and the right camaraderie and esprit de corps that you want to get with your teams. And uh, even if you're not good at it like me, you can always uh, find somebody on your team who is good at it and then effectively delegate. Number five, this is this is a tough message to deliver, but it's one that you really got to look out for. You know, you, you have to remove those people on your team who don't fit and perform for the team. The biggest point on this one is, you know, your team members, they all know exactly on the team who on the team doesn't fit and is not performing. And sadly, they usually resent you, the manager, for not doing something about it because they know it's your job. So you got to really watch out for that. It's, it's, it's easy to get lulled into a false sense of, well, everybody's, you know, pulling their own weight. And in reality, a lot of times somebody isn't. Next one, maybe the more positive version of that is cultivate the rock stars. <laughs> you know, you usually only have one or two rock stars on your team if you're lucky. Uh, and you get, there's, there's certain ways to cultivate them and give them stretch assignments and really let them blossom to the point where they might go on and maybe even get promoted over you or go somewhere else in the organization. And that's good because then you get known as being a talent developer. And the higher up in management you get, the more they look for people who are talent developers. Uh, number seven is just be a decision maker, right? Nobody likes to work for people who can't make decisions. As a matter of fact, that's usually the worst person you'll ever work for in a business career. So, you know, make a decision, move on. And if you get data later that changes your mind, then do it and admit that something caused you to change your mind and move on. Everything's changing so fast these days. You got to make decisions and react. Um, number eight is, you know, look for your mentors, you know, 
We all learned how to walk by watching our parents. And everything else you've learned how to do in life is by watching somebody else or by, uh, you know, <laughs> especially with the younger generation, watching YouTube. Um, use use the mentors. They're there. People want to give back, especially as you get higher up in management. You, you love being able to share your experience. So just look for opportunities to take that all in and incorporate it into your own personal style. And then lastly, uh, or nine, sorry, second to last, uh, be ready to move laterally in the organization. You know, I call it look left and right, not just up. Uh, a lot of times you'll get promoted up through a given function or a given uh, set of roles that are all pretty similar. And at a certain point, in order to get promoted to the next level, usually you got to have more well-wounded general manager experience. And people want to see that you can run different parts of the business or different functions or certainly perform in different roles. And you need to be willing to go laterally so that later on you can move up into something more broad. And now finally, lastly, uh, you know, you got to build your successor. And uh, the biggest reason I tell people to do this is if you build a, a good successor, you'll actually free up your own time to go take on things like stretch assignments, uh, to do extra work. And those are the things that actually, ironically, get you noticed. And if you haven't built your own successor, oftentimes you'll be viewed as, oh, well, they're too valuable in their current role. That's actually business speak for you're not going any further. You've hit a glass ceiling because you haven't built your successor. Really great points. All 10 of those are great. So I want to dig into um, all of them a little bit more. So I thought it was really interesting that you had finance as the number one um, you know, piece of advice that you would wish you'd gotten or, or what you wish you had done sooner, mostly because... You know, I think people kind of understand they need to understand the business, but to get specifically into finance, I agree it's very useful, but it's not always the first thing that people jump to in terms of a specific skill or expertise. And I will say that I have actually, um, you know, been involved in our budget in a, in a non-intentional way <laughs> and, <laughs> and it definitely helped me understand. Yeah. Um, and it de definitely helped me understand our business more and not even that, but just how, you know, what it takes to partner with, with a vendor or, you know, get things done from a contractual and sourcing perspective. So what I want to ask on that is what are some things that somebody could specifically do to get themselves better versed in finance? Yeah. The, probably the first thing that I usually encourage people to do is Talk to your manager about how or in what ways can you help with the budgeting activity. You, you mentioned that as well, that you got involved in that. That's usually your initial introduction is figuring out, well, how does the budget actually work? What are the drivers of the budget? Is it headcount driven? Is it metric driven? Is it revenue driven? Uh, usually it's all the above. Uh, but there's lots of different drivers of different pieces of the budget. And, and learning that is a really great first step. But probably the second step I would encourage is usually uh, there's data and uh, activity and maybe analysis that your uh, management might like to have done, but they don't have readily available. Mm. So ask, you know, are there any, uh, is there any financial information that uh, they don't have today that maybe you could go, you know, get a small tiger team and start putting that together or build a process for getting it put together on a regular basis? Because there's always, always more information is helpful. And and you can volunteer to to dig into that and then leverage other people in the organization that may, might have the data uh, to help you build something new. That would be another good example. And then, of course, there's always the easy, take some financial courses, you know. Obviously, us being an edu educator, uh, we believe that's a, a great way to learn. And 
go back and, and take some, you know, uh, graduate level financial courses. You, you don't need to become an accountant uh, unless that's, of course, your uh, degree that you're actually searching for or your job that you're searching for. But a lot of times just learning about, you know, it, what you don't want to do is be in the, those senior level management meetings where they're talking about weighted average cost of capital and you have no idea what WAC is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to understand not only what it means, but uh, what are the drivers of it? How does it impact the business? As you said, you know, understand a lot of the financial terms and how they how they drive the business. That's that's when you know that you can participate in almost any conversation in the organization and help drive the strategy. Because very little strategy gets done without a complete and clear understanding about the financial implications of the strategy. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so I know we could spend a lot of more time on that, but um, let's go to the people. We've talked a little bit about the some of the the side of finance and maybe a, a hard skill, but what about people? Yeah, the the people aspect of of your job is the key thing is is when you're in management. I think everybody knows this intuitively, but boy, it's hard to stop being the one who gets the work done and start focusing more on how do I help my people get the work done more efficiently? How do I get problems out of their way? How do I allow them to go on to big and be- bigger and better things? And almost never is that me doing the job for them. That's never me doing any part of the job. It's me looking at a little higher level about what can be done uh, to help them be more effective in their job. And then in addition, as we all know, you know, people have challenges. They have personal challenges. They have work challenges. They have motivational challenges. So a lot of times you're having to customize a a specific plan for each person on your team to help them grow in whatever way they need to grow, either leverage their strengths, which is always a great way to think to do, or help them, you know, shore up some of their uh, opportunities for improvement. So you spend a lot of time coming up with these individual improvement plans, individual uh, growth plans, and it's really all to make them more successful both in their current job and to be ready for the next job. And, uh, and I know a lot of managers uh, are good about coaching for performance in the current role. One of the best things you can do is help coach for performance for whatever role they want to get to next and start thinking about, well, what do they, what do my people need to do to get ready for that next role? Maybe it's your successor, but maybe it's another role in the organization. If you build those kind of relationships with people, you'll get known as the manager that others want to work for, and then you'll become a very valuable commodity in the organization. So was there a time, Eric, where, you know, being that this is the list of things that, uh, you know, you wish you knew earlier in your career, was there a time where maybe you hadn't focused as much on the people? Oh, yeah. So uh, when I started working in, well, let's just say, I, I think I think we were still the big eight accounting. So it was a while ago, <laughs> uh, and I was managing a, a small team uh, in the government area, actually, a particular and at the time, boy, it was it was just all about how can we get things done on time and how, how do we bring a lot of new young people up to speed that weren't really up to speed. And and that worked, but it what it what I found out happened is later on as you did multiple uh projects and activities, uh if you didn't start addressing the people, they either got burned out or they wanted to move on to something else because you weren't giving them the attention they needed to grow or feel like they were growing or getting prepared for the next iteration. So ironically, if you focus too much on the work, what, what I learned is if I focus too much on the work and the deliverables, I'm not grooming my people, my asset, and then they start, you know, disappearing to other parts of the organization or leaving the organization. And it was it was my fault for not building that culture and that growth attitude, growth mindset within the team. Mm. 
And you also mentioned, you know, whether it's a professional or a personal challenge. Can you talk to us a little bit more about your experiences or your suggestions for also paying attention to the fact that people obviously have personal lives? Yeah, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, most roles, you, you have a set of things that you need to get done. And I, I my philosophy is I, I don't get, try not to get involved too much in the um, micromanagement or, uh, of whether you're getting it done or not. What I care is that you get it done. You know, if, if you're, you know, you have some personal challenges that force you to get up at four o'clock in the morning to get things done, and, but you got to leave at three, that's fine. You know, I, I don't, I worry more about the outcomes than I do about, you know, the little itty bitty ins and outs that go on during the week. Cause I know everybody's got personal challenges, whether they be family members, kids, grandparents, those type of things. And you need to have some balance in your life. And, and I've also found that if people know that their manager respects them enough to get things done when they can and allows for that flexibility, they'll, uh, they actually end up being becoming more loyal. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So moving on to number three. You need to be a good public speaker. One thing that stood out to me is is that you mentioned even just on your team. So it doesn't necessarily, when you say public speaker, you know, in front of a group of hundreds of people at a conference or something. So um, I think that was really good to note. And also, um, some some people may criticize that statement of being a good public speaker because, you know, people have different strengths. Someone might be a brilliant person, even though they're not necessarily a good speaker. So um, certainly it's understandable that public speaking is is something that can help people communicate effectively and, and help influence. But what would you say to someone who has never been good at public speaking? Maybe they've tried over and over again to get great at it, and they're just not the person that's that's going to be that engaging, dynamic speaker um, you know, are there other suggestions for how somebody could maybe leverage the concept of communicating or even storytelling in other ways that are, are not your typical public speaking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I think one of the areas that you can always focus on, I've noticed most people who are who self-proclaim to not be good public speakers, two things are usually true. One, they're usually overly critical mm. uh, and they're actually not as bad as they think they are. So I would encourage you always to, you know, it's at some point get yourself videotaped and then, you know, have watch the videotape, but watch it with somebody else who can, you know, help you not be maybe as critical as you as you might be and also help you look for improvements. The second thing I've usually noticed, people who truly aren't terribly good at public speaking, ironically enough, often they're very good at other types of uh, communication. So maybe they're very good writers. You know, and so maybe they, they are a person who can, you know, spend the time and effort to make a really good written piece. So what maybe they balance their speaking communication with more written communication. Uh, I know some leaders in our organization, just because of the breadth of the organization and, and the global nature, certainly nowhere near the GE size. But you, know, you can't speak to everybody when you're uh, when you're a very big global organization. So maybe maybe you augment your speaking parts that maybe aren't as great as you'd like them to be with more written communication. Yeah. That way you make sure your, 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 your message is out there and clear and you can take the time to craft it exactly as you want. And I like that you, you sort of mentioned at the beginning of that response, basically to ask for help, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help, have somebody else sit with you and watch yourself. Um, and also the part about being overcritical, because I agree. I think I see a lot of people, e even with the example of writing, we have a blog, uh, an internal blog here at GE, and a lot of people say, yeah, you know, I'm not a writer, though, and 
you know, it's just it's it's okay if you're not a you know a professional writer <laughs> or a professional yeah. speaker. You're probably a lot better than you think, and people relate to that too. People relate to imperfection, um, and you know, it's not sometimes it's more impactful to see that come from from someone who you know hasn't spent hours and six reviewers to pump something out that's very cookie cutter in terms of a communication. Yeah, I think most people look for, both in writing and in speaking, they look for people who are genuine. So if you can make sure that you know your your passion comes through and your genuine uh, focus and attention on the topic at hand comes through in either your speaking or your writing, people people will respect it. Definitely. Okay, so number four, team building really is required. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, because uh, you know. It, what, what's all those phrases? Everybody has all these phrases about how, you know, culture eats execution, et cetera. I'm sure I'm butchering that phrase, but <laughs> at the end of the day, you're trying to, you're trying to build the culture of your team and you, it's, you can't build the culture without having team-based activities, mainly because people aren't going to act like they're part of one team if they aren't used to doing that in many aspects of not only the way they run the business, but in how they communicate and how they collaborate, and then also how they socialize. Uh, in addition, I'm always amazed at how many people don't know a lot personally about the team members they work with. And, and it's not that that's terribly important for the execution of business activities, but I've noticed that when you do get to know some personal things about the team, like what hobbies they have, what personal things they like to do, what unique talents they have. And I'm always amazed at the unique talents that people have on yeah. your team that you never knew about. Yeah. Uh, I remember one guy out of the spur of the moment, he told me he had 2,500, you know, parachuting jumps and has oh done gosh. professional photography. And I'm like, <laughs> I had no idea, you know. Not, not that I not that I know exactly how that relates to the work, but the, <laughs> you, when you start building those personal relationships, suddenly a lot of the distance you've is automatically there, and a business relationship starts breaking down. And now you're you're more willing to listen, you're more willing to collaborate. You have you you might have something in common that you didn't even know you had before, and you just build a, a closeness and a cohesiveness and a, and just an improved team based. You know, I hesitate to call it a family based culture. And when you get into that mode and you have that kind of relationship with your team members, you know, that really it, it streamlines performance, it, it streamlines communication, there's not uh, problems with missed expectations, people are feel free to be candid and talk with each other, and it just steamrolls and you really get better performance over time. Sure. So with with work and the environment just by nature becoming more more global and digital, do you have any particular suggestions for team building virtually? Yeah, so we we have a good number of teams here that are are virtual. Matter of fact, I'm on a team right now with the president of our Brazil organization, and what we what we really try to do in order to do some team building, we we set aside time to do video based activities. So you know, in our case, we happen to use you know we're using Skype today. We could be using WebEx, whatever it is, uh, but we make sure that people actually get on with video so people can see each other. And we try to make a part of meetings that we have a little more social. Sometimes when we are doing team-based activities, we will explicitly bring people in who are remote and ask them to talk or ask them to share or participate in some way. We also try to uh, come up with ways that people remote can uh, better share or participate in an activity. Uh, my favorite one we did a few years ago, we happened to be at 
1871 here in Chicago, and they had one of those little video robots. So we had somebody remotely, you know, their face was on the front of the robot, and it was rolling around the room talking oh, yeah. to everybody. Yeah. So, you know, that's a little expensive option to do, but, you know, there's there's varieties of that that you can incorporate into your thing. It really just takes foresight and forethought to think about how do I keep my remote people engaged in uh, team-based activities and design them appropriately to use, especially video. Sure. Um, and just to touch on it really quick, what are your thoughts on organizations starting to leverage social formats? Um, you know, for example, we we use Yammer inside of GE, not necessarily for team building, but even just for sharing information or, you know, bridging any gaps between between you, yourself and maybe somebody else in the organization that's in a different region or different business or things like that. Yeah, I'm always amazed that uh, uh, I've seen those things be successful. We're actually piloting uh, not Yammer, but a different technology that's very similar, though, at our organization. And one of the things that I'm always amazed by with those tools, if they're easy to use and they're easy to get into and out of, right. you know, single sign-on, et cetera, uh, people will gravitate towards like people around the organization. So I know in our own environment, we've got groups around new parents. We've got groups around uh, people who just like certain types of technology, uh, pe- people who who uh, really like sharing, you know, personal stories of thanks and gratitude, and those people gravitate together, and they end up sharing a lot of information. More importantly, I think one of the benefits of those tools is we have a lot of people ask questions because they just don't know who to ask in a big organization. Right. Hey, who can help help with blah blah blah? And ev- inevitably, somebody knows somebody who can help. And and the common response is always, oh, thank goodness for this kind of environment because I don't know how long it would have taken me to get this answer if I couldn't just put it out there for everybody to see and then point me in the right direction quickly. Yeah, yeah, we see a lot of that too, and it has been very useful, I think. Um, so to number five, which is quickly remove those who don't fit and perform in your initial response to the team building, you talked about building the culture and to some extent, um, probably not going as far to call it a family, but you know, sometimes people do build very strong relationships that they do consider some of their coworkers almost as close as family. And so while that might not be the case for everybody on the flip side of that, this question kind of addresses the importance of valuable relationships at whatever level they are. And if those aren't there, or if somebody on the team just isn't performing or fitting in, what the impacts of that are. So what are some negative impacts you've seen when this doesn't happen? Yeah, usually the sad truth is, is the, the usually when there's a poor performer on the team, somebody else or some other uh, group of people is picking up the slack for that person. And that can be okay for a very short period of time if it's episodic, but if it's continual, then the rest of the team starts to resent that person. And that certainly builds, you know, bad culture, bad karma within the team. Um, Then it can, it will over time eventually repoint itself to resentment of the manager because the people on the team will be like, how can we all know this person isn't performing yet the manager is doing nothing about it? And then it, it turns from resentment of the of the peer to resentment of the manager because people know, hey, it's management's jobs to uh, ensure that the team is getting good performance. And if they're ignoring a poor performer, you know, what does that say about the rest of us? The the challenge I've found though is is you know it's it's this all sounds really easy oh find bad performers and coach them out of the organization we all know it's a lot of times there's some challenges with that sometimes you uh, you'll have an individual who you get both good and bad feedback so well which one's right mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> you know so you, you know your job as a manager is to dig into and help try to figure it out 
probably more importantly, if there is bad feedback, your job is to coach the person to improve the areas where their bad feedback is coming and then watch closely to see if they do improve it. Because one of the danger signals is you get good and bad feedback, you coach to improve the bad, and then you ignore the fact that they really don't get any better at the mm. bad. They keep doing the good things, but they don't get any better. That that That's a big warning sign that you got somebody who's maybe not terribly coachable. And that's a challenge because, believe me, there'll be something in the future where you'll have to do something new or different, and you'll need to coach this person on something new or different. And you already know in your heart of hearts they're not a coachable person. That's going to be a problem. That's a really great point about you know, somebody in ways, you know, the, the, the good things kind of covering up the bad things, the good things are great and not to minimize those in any way, but if there are still serious issues, uh, you know, that's still going to be felt in the team. So I think, I think that's a great point. Um, what are some reasons that you've maybe seen people hesitate to take those actions, maybe as a manager, for example? Yeah, the usual, the, the worst suspect you see is somebody who's really good at getting the results, but just as just a negative person on the mm. team. So so you're thinking, oh, wow, can I afford to lose somebody who gets the results done? But what you're usually ignoring is the fact that their negative nativity is probably dragging down the overall results of the team. And it actually could be higher if this one individual was not in the way. So you got to be willing to take a step back and look at the overall performance. Plus, you got to look at the, you know, put yourself in the in the peer seats you know would you want to work with somebody who is negative and I, I would assume most people's answer is well no uh so why would you why would you inflict that on a team uh you got to be honest with yourself about that though the way i like to think about it sometimes is you know say if, if this person were to leave next week how would the team feel and if your first answer is well relief <laughs> <laughs> then you you know you need to make a change no matter how good of a individual contributor performance-wise that person might be. Well, and that, that empathy part too really struck a chord with me because it's it's sometimes easier um, if you're sort of looking at it top down to to say, oh, you know, we sure everybody can work on their tolerance skills maybe or you know adjusting yeah. to somebody else's style but if you think about it in terms of what if that was me you know in that situation every day uh, that might change the perspective a little bit so. The other way to think of it, too, is would you consciously hire somebody from the outside that you knew was not a good culture for, for your team? Right. And most, pe most people would go, well, of course not. Well, then why do you tolerate it now when it exists already? Yeah. Yep. So uh, the next one, cultivating rock stars. So you mentioned it's kind of the opposite of that. So how, how do you develop your high potential colleagues? Yeah. So usually these aren't hard to identify. You know who they are. They're the ones who get everything done. They overachieve. They deliver the results, et cetera. The biggest challenge you got to do with these people is constantly keep them challenged. You got to look for stretch assignments. And usually the easiest stretch assignments for you to give to rock stars is figure out ways that you can delegate more of your own responsibility to them. And that usually, that sometimes makes people nervous about delegating. What it really does is, remember, if you delegate to them, they, they see that. they they like, hey, my boss has given me something that they used to do. So they're pretty challenged by that. They want to succeed. Rock stars are looking for those opportunities. Even better, it then gives you an opportunity to maybe go take on a stretch assignment of your own as a manager because you've just freed up some of your time. So it's actually it can be a win-win. But looking for stretch assignments and then being honest with the person, if, if you can't give them, uh, you know, greater exposure or the next step in their career, 
working with those rock stars to make sure they stay in the organization and don't leave because most rock stars leave because they feel like they can't move around or move up. Uh, make sure that you work really hard to find out how can I get you to where you want to go in the organization so that you stay here. You never know. Uh, you, you may end up working for that person later on in life and uh, your, your extra efforts that you did now uh, might serve you very well. Yeah, and the trust that is built from that too. You know, you mentioned being honest. I think that does go a long way. If you if you know there's just not a place where you can necessarily stretch that person at that time, um, being honest about that, I think is is definitely better than if you were to not have those opportunities, but kind of lead that person on, and then you know, because then they're going to continue to think, well, you know, I could stay another year and see where this goes, but I, they said that last yeah. year, so maybe you know, I don't really trust this situation right now. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to do anything that's going to eventually break down the trust. You got to be transparent, as, as transparent as you can. And one other thing on this uh, that we've talked about recently in GE is this concept of of being multi-potential. So sometimes I, I think a lot of us uh, very easily get put into boxes and silos of, of our work and our skills. But there may be things that somebody is interested in. They may not actually have any technical background or formal background in that area, but maybe it's just something they're interested in. Um, I think uh, there was an example, I'm, I'm going to get this totally wrong, but something about a violinist and a mathematician or something like he wanted to be a, a violinist and a mathematician or some kind of music with some kind of other totally unrelated field is, is what it was. Um, and, you know, the fact that a lot of kids when they're young, and, you know, even as adults, people kind of tell you, you, you need to focus on this one thing. You can't do both this thing and that thing. Um, and this person had had actually achieved that. So when it comes to cultivating the rock stars and this, you know, high potentials and how you can grow them, I think that's important to look at, too. What What is this person interested in and how could that maybe be applied to a job um, or a potential job if that isn't currently integrated into the work? Yeah, it's amazing how much creativity you got to take as a manager to figure out, well, how can I leverage this person's interests and strengths to the betterment of not only the person, but the team? It, it sounds so easy, but it, sometimes yeah. you got to be pretty darn creative to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Okay, so number seven, being a decision maker. So there's this uh, something about a mood elevator concept. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So we, we utilize... Uh, uh, concept called a mood elevator here to make sure that you're making decisions when you're at the right place on a mood elevator. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the mood elevator concept, uh, you know, the bottom of the mood elevator would be, you know, things like depressed, angry, you know, upset, etc. And then the higher end of the mood elevator would be, you know, curious and uh, uh, grateful, you know, wise, insightful, you know, etc. And what a lot of outside data and analysis is showing that over time you make the best decisions not only in your business but in your personal life as well when you're on the top of the mood elevator so the the, the flipping point is when you're curious you know instead of being uh, defensive or angry about something you're hearing be curious about well why am I hearing what I'm hearing and then use that to move up the mood elevator and a flexible you know, sense of humor, patient, et cetera, such that you're making decisions and you're not making them based on negative emotions. Because what I've learned, at least personally, is when if I make decisions when I'm in a negative emotional state, usually I have to go back and change the decision <laughs> later because I, I reacted incorrectly. I ignored the data. I just reacted impulsively. And, you know, you really want to be able to sit back in a wise state of mind and make the right decision. There's actually, uh, I think, a, some kind of survey, and I 
of course can't remember it at this moment, but, um, and there may be a cost associated, I'm not sure, but I, I remember there is some kind of survey that will kind of assess your default behaviors and how you react under stress or in high emotional situations so that you can kind of recognize that and uh, maybe help guide that. So um, it's no help to anybody listening to this that I can't tell you <laughs> what it is, but um, you could maybe search for that. There may be resources out there, but it's a great idea. And I like that you gave the tip of how to get out of a, a mood when you're on the, when you're low on the mood elevator. Because I think for, again, me personally, it's always this thought of, okay, you have to take a break or you have to take some time. But sometimes, especially in meetings at work or you know situations that um, are fairly urgent, you don't necessarily have that time. So having that technique of being curious to, to try to flip that around quickly and, and you know not make it such a negative experience uh, is great advice. Yeah, thank you. I agree. I wish I wish I came up with it myself, but nope, I was taught it. I was taught it. <laughs> well, that's okay. That's okay. We all share. That's the beauty of sharing. Okay, so number eight is mentors. Mentors and the value of of how they help you. Yeah. So uh, you know, early on in my career, uh, the way I used mentors is I, I looked for people that had skills that I didn't have. I'll give you a good example. I happened to be working at a large pharmaceutical company earlier on in my career. And uh, one of my challenges was, you know, I was mostly working with PhD level uh, people in the organization, many of them with multiple PhDs. And it was quite intimidating to me at the time, because at the time I was in my young, my low 30s, and most of these people were in their 50s and up age-wise, and just had a ton of experience under their belt and learning how to speak to them confidently. And I had a, a, a boss who happened to be a naval uh, uh, submarine commander at one point in his career and had, you know, confidence, you know, oozing out of him. And what I did is I watched how he comported himself with these people. So it's not like that he was smarter than them. Uh, they were definitely smarter than he was, but he knew how to uh, communicate with them. He knew how to, you know, push the things that he needed to be pushed, but also back off on the things that, you know, he knew were controversial and how to make a conversation out of things, how to turn things into a story, how to build relationships with people. And I frankly just borrowed a lot of the techniques because that's what you do when you watch other people. And when you work with your mentor, you're basically leveraging somebody else's <laughs> successes and failures so that you can borrow those things that seem to fit building your own personal style. And it's hard to do that sometimes with just books and reading about what others have done, it's a lot easier sometimes to have a mentor where you can have a back and forth conversation to say, well, this is what I think I might do in this situation. And they can give you some advice and then you can have a back and forth conversation. And then maybe even later you can say, Hey, here's how it went. It, this went well, this didn't go well. And you can continue fine tuning your approaches based on not only your input, but your mentor's input. That's hopefully uh, in areas that you haven't thought about before. Yeah. And and what about the value of somebody being a mentor to somebody else? Well, one thing I know it does is it helps put you, the the mentor, uh, definitely up top of the mood elevator. You know, every time I am working with somebody else that is in a mentee relationship, it leaves me with such a positive experience when I come out of it, mainly because I, I, I'm getting an opportunity to share back. I'm getting an opportunity to, to share what I've learned over time. And usually it's pretty fun helping them solve their problems, too. It's actually an enjoyable, fun activity. It also gives you a chance to step back and reflect, okay, 
oh, you know, how would I have handled this? And, and sometimes you have some epiphanies during your own personal reflection as a mentor and you think, hey, I'm telling this person what to do. And you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I need to listen to myself and <laughs> do this the next time it happens. So it's actually a great personal reflection opportunity as well. Right, right. Kind of that idea of learning by teaching. Yes. <laughs> and then also, I think deep within, under the layers of mentoring, both as a mentor and as a mentee, is this concept of constant learning. I think earlier when you mentioned this item, you talked a little bit about how some people's mentors are YouTube, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, especially with younger generations. So what is that value of just learning every day, whether it's through a mentor or, you know, using all of the the uh, various digital resources that we have in this day and age to just keep learning. Yeah. I mean, we all know that, uh, uh, I, I did a survey recently at a place where I was speaking at an economist event in New York city. And, uh, somebody else actually up there asked how many people in the audience have blah, 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 uh, certain type of college degree. Everybody put up their hand. Of course, everybody had a college degree. And then later on they asked, well, how many of you actually are working in the in the field that you got your degree in and like three people out of like mm. 300 raised their hands <laughs> so it's just a good example to say you know what got you here is usually what not what will get you to the next step you know you, you always got to be looking at what do i need to do to get to the next step whatever that is that you want in life uh, and saying great what do i have to learn to get to the next step and a lot of times in business your learnings to get to the next step are best learned from mentors and others in the organization who have already uh, walked the path that you're trying to walk down as opposed to trying to ferret out from a book or from a video what applies to your organization. Why not just go ask the people who are already walked down the path in your organization? They can tell you usually pretty easily exactly what is needed to go to the next level. And just dealing with change too. I mean, again, the world's changing so fast that it's just to keep up with what's going on. It's like you have to constantly be um, on your game with with what's going on there. Yeah, it's 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 fun because you know who, who you know I don't know I don't really know many people who want a job that stays the same forever. That's, right, right. That's a recipe for boring. <laughs> the, the, the 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 sad part is is change is also scary. So yes, the, yeah. the best thing that you can do to overcome your fear of change is make sure that you're you know most people are afraid of things that they don't control. Well, if you're doing things to take back control like educating yourself, learning new things to make sure that you're ready for the impending change. Uh, maybe you're even getting in a position where you can influence the change. Suddenly you're in control and you will be a lot less afraid just because you're now back in control. That's a great way to think of it. Yeah. Okay. So the last couple of items here, we've got number nine, look left and right, not just up. <laughs> yep. For me, the, uh, the, I got some great advice early in my career. They said, hey, if the CEO ever comes and asks you to do something that seems really odd, the correct answer is yes. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, you know, a few months later, it actually happened. The CEO sat me down in the lunchroom and said, hey, uh, we, got, we got this new little, little tiny division that we just bought over here. And I know you're leading a couple hundred person group, but I want you to go over there and I want you to learn everything you can about this business. And, uh, and by the way, you won't have any direct reports. 
<laughs> and and I, I remember my face, I'm sure it fell, uh, but I remembered thankfully what was there. And I said, yes, I'll be glad to do that. I found out later that he was upset that I didn't look happier about this, but I'm like, you didn't exactly, yeah, he saw right through me, but I said the right words. Well, all he was really doing was he was teeing me up to learn a new line of business that we just bought. Cause then we went on to make three more acquisitions and I ended up becoming a leader in rolling all those three acquisitions together. So you, you got to be willing to listen. When your leader comes to you and says, I want you to do something different, it's almost always for developmental reasons. Now, I wish leaders would always tell you what those development yeah. reasons are, but they don't always. <laughs> yeah. They don't always. Sometimes they like to challenge you, and, and you got to be okay with that. So look for those opportunities to say yes, because it's almost always a, a, a development opportunity for you. Then in addition, you know, uh, Think about the leaders of big departments. They usually have many different small departments under them, and they need to lead all those four or five different departments, and they need to know a little bit about all of them. They're usually not an expert in just one of them. So you got to be willing to let yourself maybe rotate around in your organization so that you learn more of the organization, such that when the opportunity for maybe the senior leader position comes around, you're the most well-rounded candidate now and you're going to be valued over somebody else who has only been up in one silo. Definitely. I, I don't think I can add any more to that. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Last one then, you because this does it touched on a little bit of what you just said anyway. So delegating and, and building your successor. So the first question is, you know, what's in it for somebody to do this? Why would somebody want to do this? You talked a little bit about it. Um, and then second to that, what approaches can someone use to actually practice the delegating and, and otherwise building their successor? Yeah, great questions. Great questions. Uh, I, I still think the biggest reason for building your successor, there's two big reasons. One uh, at certain levels in the organization, there's a phrase that is always used, is this person a talent developer? And if the answer is no, that usually caps off your career right there. Because uh, as you get higher up in the organization, all you're really doing at some level is managing people and, yes, making decisions. But if you can't develop people, you will you will build your own glass ceiling. So you have to work on building your successor because that's how you showcase that you can develop talent. Um, the second big reason is you want to develop a successor and be able to delegate stuff to them so you yourself can take on stretch response uh, uh, assignments, uh, additional responsibilities, because your own management team is looking for, hey, who who has such a well-run team, such a well-running team that they can take on extra work? You know, it doesn't sound fun sometimes to take on extra work, but we all know that extra work oftentimes leads to extra opportunities. But as far as your second part of your question, as far as, you know, how do you do this? Uh, I usually challenge people to think of, look at a person, step back for a second and say, if I was to stop being here tomorrow, because maybe maybe I got lucky and I won the lottery, <laughs> uh, what would this person not know how to do that they would need to know how to do if they had to step into my role? And usually that line of thinking then leads you down a path of, oh, I got to get them this experience. Oh, I got to get them this experience. Oh, I got to introduce them to these people. And another key person uh, point to think about, too, is usually you can nominate your successor. You usually don't get to pick your successor. Somebody else is picking your successor because, of right. course, you're somewhere else. So think about who are the people who will be making the decision on your successor and make sure that your successor has an opportunity to build strong relationships with those decision makers. One of the worst things you want to do is get a person already, and then they don't have any relationship with the people making the decision, and they get overlooked. Yeah, that's... 
that's really important. And I've been, um, I'm just reflecting on this as you're speaking, because that's been something that's definitely stood out in my mind um, as, as useful to my career development is just being connected to, to the people that are in a field that, that, um, that I want to go more into and just things like that. It's funny you mentioned that. I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, I know people don't like the phrase networking. They don't like the activity of networking, but there is no easier place to network than within your own company. Because there's always something in common to talk about. Icebreakers are almost readily available. And, you know, most people join a large organization like GE or even a mid-sized organization like DeVry Education Group for the opportunity to grow. And the best opportunity is to learn and meet people around the organization such that when they know of an opportunity, maybe because you built a relationship with you, they're going to think of calling you and telling you about the opportunity so you have an opportunity to go after it. Absolutely. It's, it's funny because earlier in my career, um, I, I worked for very small companies, you know, local companies. And then my first experience with a global company, I worked there for a few years. And by the time I graduated with my undergrad degree, I was like, you know, I really want to try something new because this company has a lot of bureaucracy. You know, I don't know if I like the matrix environment. I just wasn't sure. So I then moved uh, to try a couple other smaller companies and very quickly realized the benefits of having such a large and diverse company um, to participate in and to connect with all of those people throughout the organization. And so, of course, now being with GE, it's like everybody, anybody I could ever want to connect with <laughs> in the world, I could probably find somebody that's an employee of GE. Yeah, yeah. So the bigger the company, the the bigger the number of opportunities. But you got to go looking for them. They oftentimes don't come find you. That's true too. Yep. Okay. So in the last few minutes here, um, you know, we've talked a lot about some general tips that people could take into account, maybe as they're starting their career, or you know, later in their career, if you're looking how to grow, maybe these are things that somebody could revisit. But in general, you know, there are there are tons of opinions about uh, younger generations entering the workforce and things that they should do. What general advice would you give to people who are just entering the workforce given these items? Is there one of these items you would pick? Is there other things maybe not on this list that you would suggest to them? You know, actually, uh, a couple of things come to mind. One is the topic we just talked about. Uh, coming in as a younger person in an organization, whether you're uh, this current generation or previous generations, one of the best things you can do is is network your way around the organization, get to know people, uh, learn more about the organization because oftentimes, you know, you start in an entry-level position and you already know this is not your long-term goal. Uh, maybe it was just a, a, the where the door opened at, right? And this is how you got in. This is how you got a paycheck. Uh, but don't expect people to be setting, according, charting the course for you. You know, start meeting people people around the organization looking for opportunities. And you'll never know, you might find something that surprises you. Uh, I know I have young sons who are in college and, you know, one of the things they stress out a lot about at this age is, well, I don't know exactly what I want to do. Mm. And, you know, telling them that that's okay is, is not a good answer. But what, what you can do is you can talk to lots of people in an organization and figure out, uh, you know, what opportunities do exist and then uh, start driving your career in the directions of opportunities that seem of interest and let it, let it chart its own course for a little bit. That would probably be number one. And then uh, number two, I, I would definitely say is always as you move up your career, you know, be viewed as a decision maker. That's who people want to work with. Uh, 
and you'll have lots of opportunities for being a decision maker, even when, even in your entry level jobs. Uh, you you got to look for opportunities to make decisions. You got to look for opportunities to make your impact on your organization, and look for opportunities to improve processes and efficiencies. If you get viewed as a person who can make decisions and a person who can improve things uh, by making them better, you'll go far, and you'll go far quickly. Definitely. I always tell people, even if it's not in your job description, if there's something you want to do or an impact you want to make, just try it. It doesn't matter. And and as you're looking for your next role, just because something wasn't in your job description doesn't mean that if you practice that, if you applied that skill somehow in your role, um, obviously, certainly don't lie about, you know, <laughs> what your job actually was. But some of those things can be valid. Um, if you're practicing those, and you make a concerted effort to do that, it can absolutely be something that, that you can vouch for as you're looking for your next step. Yeah, agreed completely. And then uh, one thing I forgot to mention that's that's uh, surprisingly many people forget about is they is they focus a little bit too much on what's the next step in their career. They sometimes don't do a great job in their current role. That's always the base. You yeah. got to do a great job in your current role. And if you do a great job in your current role, that opens up the opportunities for doing all the things we just discussed today. So make sure that you're really doing a solid job. And then that'll that'll automatically get you elevated to the point from which you can look for more opportunities. Right, right. You can't forget the the value of your reputation, and that goes also for managers and organizations. Um, somebody at a at a conference once said, as a as a manager or an organization, even if somebody is going to eventually leave, your reputation as an organization goes with that person as well. So it goes both ways, and I think uh, that's definitely important to focus on in the yeah. moment how how you're uh, performing. I agree completely. That's a great point. Awesome. Well, I know we're at the end of the time, Eric. Um, is there anything else that you want to add? Just thanks for the opportunity to speak to uh, all the GE colleagues around the world. I think it's a great opportunity, and thank you very much for allowing me to do so. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and of course, like, comment, rate, and share. Thanks for listening. <laughs>